Okay, so this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 103. And we're going to be starting in verse 10 and reading to 18. So Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So this small portion of Psalm 103 here says a lot about how compassionate and merciful God is to believers, and at the same time how weak and dependent believers are. And within these verses, there are a few words we will especially highlight that lead to questions like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I living for? What is eternally important? These words in verse 16. Its place knows it no more, remembers it no more, recognizes it no more. So to summarize, as we start walking through these nine verses, we are going to hear about God removing our sins and his love for believers. Then about God dealing with us humans who are dust, and then what flows from that dustness our lives in light of our dustness, and then come back to God's love for us as we live in obedience to God's word, the obedience which comes by faith in Christ. So first, the beginning of this passage speaks of the mercy of God on guilty sinners. And for anyone who meets the criteria in here for God's removing their sins from them, they can relish in the importance of this verse that he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us accordingly, which would, of course, be a very horrible repayment. And the criteria is it's for those who fear him, fear God. Twice in here in our passage from the Old Testament, it says these good things his removing our transgressions from us are only for those 
who fear him. His compassion is shown to those who fear him. His steadfast, everlasting love is for those who fear him. Of course, here in Psalm 103, we are reading this morning from the Old Testament. And here in the Old Testament, the gospel, that is the new covenant, is expressed clearly in Jeremiah, where it is for those fearing God. Things like, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And of course, Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians when he speaks of the coming judgment seat of Christ, which awaits us all and then describes our lives as believers until then as knowing the fear of the Lord. So for those who have had their hearts and eyes open to see who they really are before God, the depth of their sin and those horrible judgments which result, this fearful God promising he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, is God's amazing grace and mercy on guilty, repentant sinners. And then the psalmist goes on to highlight the extremes between grace that taught my heart to fear and that same grace my fears relieved because he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So if you want to find them, go west until you do. But the earth is round, so you'll never actually get to the end of it. Try east, same thing, gone forever. And it's because of verse 11. That as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Fear him. What few words do we know the thief on the cross says as he is dying before he is promised and then enters paradise, basically evangelizing the other thief? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you too will be saved? Not really. Rather, to the other thief, don't you fear God? We are punished justly. So now, moving on to our dustness, in verse 14, God reminds us we are dust. He remembers we are dust. The verse tells us how exceedingly temporary and frail we humans are. And by reminding us we are dust, we recall when God created the heavens and earth, that on the sixth day, when he made man, God tells us exactly how this came about. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So when God says in verse 14, he remembers we are dust, he's reminding us that's where we came from, that's where we're going to end up. 
After Adam sinned, God told him his future, which for Adam was going to be hundreds of years later, but still guaranteed by God to come till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he remembers that we are dust has profound meanings. First of all, for myself, it's very helpful in checking my pride, especially living in constant erroneous cultural bombardment that we are a man-centered world when it is a completely God-centered world. This includes his believing children who are prone to, as the hymn says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God they love. God reminding us we are dust is a tremendous blessing and goes perfectly with the way God is towards his human creation, patient, perfect patience, as Paul calls it, patient with us before and after new birth, not wanting any to perish. And the apostles and various disciples are perfect examples for us of God's patience with spirit-filled dust. And they provide a shiny mirror for me to look into. Those who followed Jesus while he was here, not many were wise, nor influential, or highborn. His patience with those he lived with, ministered to, is so clear. A strong rebuke by Jesus in the scriptures is rare. At one point he did say, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? But in comparison to the many opportunities these folks provided for Jesus to be impatient and frustrated, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the response to Jesus Oh, right, Jesus, we forgot to bring the bread. Jesus is patient. Remember, five loaves feeding 5,000 and seven loaves feeding 4,000? Don't worry about bread. Or Jesus tells him, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, killed, and rise again. And their discussion, who amongst us is the greatest? After Jesus died, two of his scattered disciples meet Jesus walking along. We had hoped Jesus was the one to redeem us, but he's been crucified. Oh, foolish ones, oh, slow of heart, let me explain. Israel's great teacher, how can these things be? Nicodemus is carefully instructed. The son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Falling asleep while Jesus sweats blood, wanting to call down fire from heaven on people, telling the children to back off from Jesus, telling him there is no way he's going to go die in Jerusalem. These are such great examples for me, maybe you, 
often slow to understand and respond, definitely spirit-filled dust with a brain, but dust nonetheless. Today we are highly educated and knowledgeable, but these disciples of Jesus are much like us. And, and they are helpful in me remembering everyone around me is of the same dust. So Paul's words help me remember that. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Christ, our example, and the scriptures, our encouragement to not grow weary in doing that kind of good. And then there is something else in here about our dustness. The first part of the verse says, for he knows our frame and he remembers we are dust. The frame the psalmist is speaking of, this Hebrew word for frame, is often about the thoughts of our heart, the intentions of our mind. Frame is the same Hebrew word which the Lord uses to describe mankind before the flood. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's why these words flow so perfectly together. Our frailty in being not only spirit-filled dust, but our whole self, our frame, including our inner being, each of us having intentions and desires and thoughts only you and the Lord know so well. And thus, those who fear him, believers in our holy God, love to hear from him that he doesn't repay believers according to their sins. That in his steadfast love, the believer's sins are removed far away, this compassionate God to his children. Because to believers he has given a changed will and mind and heart, new desires, new understandings, a true hope, and a great blessed fear of our mighty God. And so it flows perfectly that the word for frame, our frame the Lord knows so well, is also in Isaiah about our forgiven hearts and minds. You, O Lord, keep him in perfect peace, whose mind, whose frame is stayed on you because he trusts in you. He knows our frame and he remembers we are dust. Now that brings us to our next two verses, which flow from the truth about our frame and that we are dust, which the psalmist has just made clear. These remaining verses tell us how to live in light of our dustness. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place knows it no more. There is in here, in verse 16, something to take a close look at. 
These re verses referring to the metaphor of we humans being like grass and flowers of the field actually appear several times in Scripture. Psalm 90 tells us we return to dust after a short time. And like the grass of the morning which flourishes and is renewed, it fades and withers in the evening. Isaiah tells us our flesh is like grass, our beauty like the flowers which then wither and fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And Job tells us we are few of days and full of trouble, beginning like a flower and withering. So the grass and flower analogy of our frailty and brevity are clear in the scriptures. But there is something special in our text this morning. It agrees with others that our earthly days are like grass and that we flourish like a flower, which is soon gone. But then it ends with something very important and its place knows it no more. And those few little words at the end are a delightful, beautiful, and sobering truth. And if we don't already have a grasp of it, we need to, to live like that, especially in this era of social media, where so many are without Christ or even with Christ, and the easy fame and notoriety turbocharges the pride which is in me and you and all of us. Its place knows it no more. Its place acknowledges it no more, recognizes it no more. That's easy to think about when it comes to grass and flowers, beautiful for a while, then gone, forgotten, until the next one. But to the human heart, which longs for meaning and connection, purpose and acknowledgement, which then must admit and realize you will be quickly forgotten. It is a sobering truth to reflect on. When you are young and there is so much to do and achieve that is meaningful, you are in the midst of making history, really by definition. When you get older, and you have seen many pass away, and after a few years, there is less and less evidence anywhere they ever existed. Few recall them. What was his name again? I could name many examples, but briefly. A few years before I was born, actually more than a few, one of the most famous female tennis players and some would say the greatest ever, a woman from California won 31 Grand Slam titles. One match she was in is known as the match of the century. Front page of every paper and twice on the cover of Time magazine. She was then more famous than Babe Ruth, Helen Wills. Ever heard of her? When I was younger, at every store's checkout, you'd glance at the many magazine covers as you waited, and they were constantly picturing President Kennedy's wife after his assassination, the usual endless gossip. But then, as I grew older, 
the many decades went by and I began to notice it was less and less. Then she passed away and now she's disappeared. I asked a not too young person, never heard of her. Although my legacy through my children and grandchildren will hopefully live on, on this earth, I will be quickly forgotten by everyone living, really, in about two generations. And so there is the beautiful truth in this verse. Its place knows it no more, remembers, acknowledges it no more. How long will anyone care or remember since we are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes? Well, God, he never forgets. Or does he? We believers hopefully do much in loving others around us in all the ways Jesus teaches us through his word. But what is lasting and remembered in an eternal way? For us believers, we who fear God, the beginning of our text tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So may I say, at penalty of your frowning at me, our God has a bad memory for believers in regard to their sin. God's sinless son Jesus is where the penalty for believers' sin has gone paid in full. He won't remember. May I say he won't recall it. Recall it back up from where Micah says God has sent it. He casts all our sins into the depths of the sea because of Jesus. His sacrifice for those sins on the cross and our faith in him. But of course, God has a flawless memory. Down here, the scorching wind blows over us and our place may know us no more. The world will soon forget, in fact, dissolve like snow. But God, just the opposite. When that wind, the wind we don't know where it comes from or where it goes, the Holy Spirit, when he comes and gives new birth to a dead heart, when saving faith comes to us, we can no longer live in the ultimate despair which unbelievers try to ignore. Paul is a good example of how a person lives, knowing God's perfect remembrance. His living comes from the obedience of faith, the word of God, the teachings of Jesus. He knows that apart from Jesus, he can do nothing. As Jesus says, he who is the vine, giving life to his branches, glorifying the Father and bearing fruit. And Paul loves to bear fruit. So it seems he stays close to Jesus, stays in the vine. Paul knows it is God working in him and in us believers to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so Paul lives this way and goes around the world urging all believers everywhere to do the same. In Galatians, he tells us to bear one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. To not grow weary in doing good to everyone, especially believers. To never give up. 
In Colossians, he is praying for believers' faith so they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all ways. Charging the Thessalonians the same, walking in a manner worthy of God. And of course, in Romans, living in harmony with one another, never stumbling someone by our actions and saying, if we serve Christ like that, we are acceptable to God and approved by men as we pursue building each other up. The writer of Hebrews says it nicely, that God will not forget your work and the love you have shown for God's good name in serving the saints. So I guess we can tell God is urging us not to waste our lives in things which our place will not remember, will know no more. Instead, he's got some great ideas of how to do that. Some seem pretty simple. Things like letting your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Others are more of a challenge for us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Would this be true of us? Paul saying, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Or even stand like the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Or in that standing, to be like Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Maybe, if we have the heart of the apostles, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So there is something God put in the heart of those believers which is very Christ-centered. Paul's got that fearlessness in his heart. For him to live, it is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, can I mention one thing here, thinking of Paul? And it's the same for Stephen and the apostles who got beaten. And for every believer, simply letting their light shine before others, Paul says it. He does not run aimlessly. Rather, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why? So that even in the midst of running his race, living for the glory of God, self-control is his focus. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So God, in his goodness, guides us believers in his word very nicely in how not to live our lives for things which our place won't remember. There are many times God tells believers of their reward as they live from him and through him and to him. It's always a blessing God is promising believers Whatever the reward is, it's good. Only one time in the New Testament, when God speaks of a reward, it's not a blessing. And that's when Judas got his reward for his betrayal of Jesus. Other times, 
Go into your room and pray, and your Father will reward you. When you give to the needy in secret, God will reward you. And when you fast, to make it very simple, even this, whoever provides a cup of cold water because he is a disciple won't lose his reward. And speaking of the regular parts of life, your vocation, your daily work, God says in obeying our masters sincerely from the heart, whatever good you do, you'll receive back from the Lord. As a matter of fact, God gives lift up your eyes direction when he tells the Colossians in marriage, in family life, in that vocation, do it heartily to the Lord. Why? Knowing you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And what is that? Well, according to Jesus, it's his eternal kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So we forgive and we will be forgiven. We give and it will be given to us. And in all this, we remain steadfast under trial because when a believer has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So there are many ways to not end up having a life of nothing more than being that grass and flourishing but then forgotten flower when the inevitable wind blows over you and all you've done, it's gone and this earth ultimately remembers it no more. Paul takes the eternal view, living by faith, being courageous and sums up how to live saying, we make it our aim to please the Lord in all things. But then he continues, reminding us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due to us for what we have done while we were here in the body, while still green grass and a flourishing flower before the wind blows and it's gone. Paul says each of us will give an account of himself to God, giving account for every careless word we speak, rendering to each one according to his deeds, whether good or bad, go on to the Lord's judgment seat. So how have we been living and serving and building up the body, the church, glorifying Christ? Does the day of the Lord, when tested with fire by the Lord, see that it was gold, silver, precious stones? Or have we built and served the body of Christ and each other with wood and hay and straw, which will be ashes? Is it our God-glorifying mindset as part of the body of Christ, fulfilling our roles as parents, workers, students, family life, church life, citizen life, doing the daily things we must do in life? Does it matter if it's praised by others or as works of silver in total obscurity? A tower of rubies which the church applauds in unison or a gold nugget service done in secret for the glory of God, whatever it is for each of us, 
Now will you note, we must be reminded, all begins with Christ, the foundation. No real body of Christ which is not built upon Christ, and there is no gospel but the one built on Christ, and there is no salvation which is not built on Christ through his gospel. There is no real Christian living and working in that body, no truly flourishing flower except that built upon Christ. So now, in the last verses for this morning, we come back to God's love for us as we live in obedience to God's word. If I should live for Christ, knowing his perfect remembrance, that he is my great reward, not living for something which will be remembered or know no more, I am, after all, still dust. God is the creator of the seed for the flowers which grow and then fade, and likewise for me. A mist for a while. The last two verses from our text. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So there it is again, the love of Christ, his righteousness. But to all? No. Rather to those who what? Keep his covenant, his commandments. These are eternal, everlasting, no flourishing and then fading, never forgotten. Isaiah gives us the perfect contrast. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And likewise, Jesus, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There is the fleeting and there is the eternal. There is the corrupted, and there is the flawless, perfect. Sin has corrupted the seed that grows into the flower that fades, destined to pass away. Sin has corrupted me since my life began, and King David's as well. In sin did my mother conceive me, but there is a seed which is uncorrupted, that perfect eternal seed, and both these seeds give life. Each has its glory, though the sinful seed of mankind is infused with depravity, waiting to be expressed and fall ultimately under God's judgment. It grows slowly and matures. No flower at first, then it blooms. Yes, it can do very good things, but I blossom with good works, religiosity, and fleshly desires, evil thoughts, and intentions of the heart, pride and possessions and position. Person stands on the bluff over here and sees the amazing beauty of the ocean in all its glory as the sun shines on it. But how far down below the surface does one have to go before they are in total darkness. 
But the other seed? That is the imperishable seed through which one has new birth by God's mercy upon your soul. The spiritual life implanted by the Holy Spirit to produce the new birth. A babe in Christ. And slowly, not too slowly one hopes, as Paul says, we are filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That seed flowers into a spiritual life which is ultimately impervious to a hot wind, accidents, famine, disease, sword, or old age because he who lives and believes shall never have a spiritual death, never die, Jesus promises. In the meantime, Paul says, as we behold the glory of the Lord in our new birth, we ourselves are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If true new birth, there's no wind passing over it and it's gone. There's no dust to dust for the eternal life in Christ, a believer's second life born again by the mercy of Christ. Peter tells us, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he continues with the same language as our text this morning. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But then a very important difference. Instead of ending with, its place knows it, remembers it no more. Peter ends with, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That is the key difference. In our text from Psalm 103 this morning, he reminds us of our frailty and brevity to realize our earthly pres presence will be mostly forgotten by those who come after a mist that vanishes. But Peter, just the opposite. He reminds us of the eternal, the eternal word of God and by God's mercy, it resulting in eternal life and one not wasted nor forgotten. And what about this eternal word? Peter then finishes with, and this is the good news that was preached to you. Preached to you now and every Sunday in this church. People say lots of things, and most of it is forgotten by others. There are a few flourishing flowers that have said something remembered by many. Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, and yet millions have memorized it. But much of what I have said this morning will not be long remembered. But if nothing else, I pray this will. Will you hear it? Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, 
that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Will you hear it and believe it? Will you hear it and love it? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty sins. For my life, he bled and died. Justice has been satisfied. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your eternal word. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the way not to look at ourselves and say, look, God has made me a flourishing flower. How did I become like this? But Lord, for all to say, oh, I am the creation of a mighty, fearful, wonderful, saving God. And may everyone here believe those beautiful words that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day and he is coming back. He will hold fast those who are his till he comes at last because justice has been satisfied by the blood from Emmanuel's veins. So everyone, everyone in this room, may they have come to that fountain the fountain that comes from the cross, the cross of Christ, and say, I am bathed in the blood, the sinless blood of Christ for forgiveness, and now I have robes of righteousness, not of my own, but those which were given to me, the old rags removed and the new beautiful white robes of righteousness given to me by a merciful God. Oh, Lord, do your mighty work in saving and encouraging and reminding us who we are, who we are before God. Dust that he has breathed life into. And for those who are yours, new life through the spirit by the hearing of the word, we thank you this morning. Amen.